go. There we go. All right. So you missed my preamble, which is that autumn is here because it's getting dark really early and the days are getting shorter. So it felt to me this morning like maybe it was a time to just slow it down a little bit. So um, our meditation this morning is um, kind of based on the story of the prodigal son and it allows us um, hopefully a little time for a little self-reflection. So I invite you to sit up straight in your chair and to put your feet on the floor, your hands in your lap, and we're going to check in and see where we are in our head space and our heart space. So I invite you to close your eyes and to take some slow, gentle breaths, breathing in and out. invite you to move your shoulders down away from your ears. Maybe roll your sh shoulders forward once or twice if that feels good and appropriate to you. Maybe roll them back again. And I invite you to lengthen your breath, to breathe in and to hold it for a few seconds up at the top before you let it go, and if you want to make a loud noise when you let that breath go, that's cool too. So today we're focusing on the story of the prodigal son um, that's the name of the story as we've always known it, but maybe it's not the best and most appropriate name. But in that story, there are three main figures, and I want you to listen and to see if there are maybe aspects or characteristics in that that might resonate with you. As you listen, I want you to know and to remember that you are loved and accepted right where you are just as you are, and I'll say that again, you are loved and accepted right where you are, just as you are. There's a child in that story. He's a child who left home. He left home because what was beyond the horizon seemed enticing to him, and he squandered away some of what was his, some of what he squandered was money, some of what he squandered was relationships. He was discontent. There's also a father or a mother figure, one who was watching, waiting expectantly, hopeful, arms open wide in love, extending forgiveness, offering grace and un unconditional love. There's another sibling, there's an older sibling, one who is dutiful and obedient, who does the right thing but feels unappreciated or overlooked. His obedience is deemed unremarkable. Perhaps someone else got the blessing that he thought that he deserved. So sit with those things, sit with those characteristics, with those aspects for a, a moment, and ask yourself, how is it with my soul today? How is it with my soul today?
And I will say to you again that you are loved and accepted, deeply loved right and accepted right where you are. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. St. Teresa was a woman who quietly struggled deeply with her faith and St. Teresa said, it is the nature of love to work in a thousand different ways. Sit with that for a moment. It is the nature of love to work in a thousand different ways. I invite you to open your eyes again and rest in the deep and abiding knowledge that you are loved. Thank you. So today, uh, you can go ahead and bring my stuff up, Trudy. We're going to take a look at one of the two most famous parables that Jesus ever taught. And to get here, I want to uh, say a couple things. Um, first is, totally unrelated to this parable. Uh, there's Darlene Tremuen right there. Wave at me, Darlene, so I can see you all right. So I talked to Tom Ord this week uh, with Andrew Davis, and we were talking about the conference uh, that we just had, and they were over the moon about your support and just so excited and felt like you guys were incredible and loving, and they just went on and on about the hospitality. And there was only one problem, and Tom Ord said, the chocolate chip banana bread was too good. <laughs> <laughs> which is all Darlene Tremuth. <laughs> well done. That was fantastic, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say uh, is we're looking, at, um, we're looking at an aspect of God today uh, that is very welcome to us, particularly here at Crosswalk. Dovetails really perfectly with what uh, Pam just took us through. has to do with the loving nature of God, um, which I believe is the primary, the, the most important characteristic of God, not, not omnipotence, which is uh, usually what people think of, all-powerful. I think love is the number one uh, prevailing thing of God. Uh, and a lot of people that uh, hear me say that, especially over time, especially if they've been brought up in a different um, tradition or a more classic Christian uh, understanding, they eventually raise their hands and say, what about, what about the grumpy God? And what about the judgy Jesus? <laughs> because there are passages in the New Testament where you have judgy, judgy Jesus talking about a grumpy God uh, that's going to judge us and, you know, we're all, we're all going to hell, whatever. And so what I want to say just briefly on that, just to kind of put a pause on that, I will do a, a good question night uh, probably in January maybe that will deal just with that. In fact, uh, one other little clue, uh, in uh, December... I have the dates like uh, whatever the middle Wednesday is in December the 14th, maybe somewhere in there. I'm going to do a good question thing just on the birth narratives. 
because if some of you have walked through the birth narratives, you know there are some problems. There are some biblical, historical problems, some textual, critical problems that I can help you get your brain around a little bit. And there are theological problems with it too. So if you've ever wondered, how do we really make sense of this story? And what do we do with that? And you want to get a little nerdy with me. Uh, that'll be on that particular Wednesday night. We'll get nerdy together and I'll help uh, give you some tools to think about that. And I'll do the same kind of thing to help with some tools when we get into January and talk about what do we do with judgy Jesus and grumpy God. Uh, because that's, that's in the story and you, you can't just ignore it. It's there. The real quick overview on that, just to give you a little bit of peace of mind on that. Uh, one is, is that we remember that the Bible was not dropped out of the sky. It didn't just fall into our laps as one completed document with God's signature at the end. It's not how it came to be. It came to be over centuries of time with many different human beings offering their very best to this project. The Bible is not a book. It's a library of 66 books that reflect different genres, different people, different orientations, all written in different time contexts, and all of that shows up in the Bible some way, somehow. God didn't write the Bible. Human beings wrote the Bible that were very passionate about their spirituality and the story they wanted to tell. Certainly they were prayerful about it, but God didn't write the Bible, and therefore we need to respect that. Jesus didn't write one thing down that made it into our Bible. He didn't write his stuff, he talked his stuff. He lived his stuff. And his followers remembered what he had to say and wrote it down. Everything that was written down about Jesus that became our gospel at some point was written much after Jesus' life. Uh, like the final documents, we're talking mm, three decades at the very earliest is when they came to be, like in a finalized way. Scraps and pieces, stories that were shared, certainly those were around. But my point is this, that by the time things got around uh, to getting down on the parchment, there'd been a lot of time to pass. And you see clearly, both through some anachronisms, there are some things that are spoken about in the, in the Gospels themselves that let us know that they were written much later and reflecting things that were much later, also lots of other interesting things. But my point is this, you see the influence of context on the Gospel writers themselves even as they're putting words in Jesus' mouth. So part of the reality that we deal with, and I'll talk more about this in January, is that while we see the words in red that tell us these are Jesus' words, they may not be. Or they may be heavily influenced by the writer's context. Or if we're just being totally fair with Jesus, he was a first century Jewish man. And while he was completely enamored with this Abba God that we'll talk about today, that I think was the prevailing thing that made his message different in his time, he was still a first century Jewish man living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and it is entirely possible that in certain moments, in certain contexts, he may have been judgy Jesus because he was a human being. Now, I know none of you have ever had a bad day. <laughs> but is it possible that Jesus did? Is it possible that Jesus got so ticked off that he let fly with some things that he wished he could take back? Yeah. I think so, and that's okay. It doesn't take anything away from Jesus at all. So I, want, I wanted to say that little preamble before we jump in because today is a warm theological hug for you as we take a look at a beloved, extremely provocative text. 
When you hear the story, the prodigal, it's not going to seem provocative to you, really, uh, because we're so familiar with it. But when Jesus told his stories, he told them with a purpose, to shake people's thinking, to make them wonder. Here in this artwork here, which you can not see too good because it's a, it's a dark print, and you can Google it if you want. This is called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt uh, from 1667 approximately. And there are some beautiful characteristics here about uh, both the state of the son. This is the younger son who's come back and the love of the father. And I encourage you to look at it in high definition if you can later today. I'm going to walk through the story with you. We're going to take some pauses along the way. And then I'm uh, going to just reflect on some things uh, that seem to be right there in our face. So we start off. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. Just a little text note. Many of you have heard me teach this. I've probably taught this as many as other parables. Uh, there's probably a handful of texts that I've taught more than others. Oh, Lauren's here. I was going to have you read it. Do you feel like reading? Okay, let's bring Lauren up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to her anytime I can. <laughs> this shows so much about the audacity of my leadership and, <laughs> and my confidence in your ability. So here you go. Just read it out. Where am I starting from? Uh, just at the top and just all the way to the bottom. Okay. There was a once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country he had began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten... Ooh. Wait, lost my place. Wait, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one could give him any. That brought him to his senses, he said. All those farm hands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his, on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. He, calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has, he has him home safe and sound. 
The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go out and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother's of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. That was awesome, man. Way to go. <laughs> Holy cow, I mean, you had no idea you were going to do that today, and you just totally killed it. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Way better than I would have done. I love it. What a gift, right? And she's only a sophomore in high school. Can you believe that? Holy cow, fantastic. Uh, okay, so I think we can go home now. That was, that was so good. Just the story. So I have some questions here, uh, and this is just right along the line with Pam. We're not going to overdo that because she did a great job with it, but how do we resemble the younger son or the older son, and how has Abba been like this toward us, and who do we choose to emulate? So there are some shocking things in this story that may not be that shocking to us because we're so familiar with it, and yet there are parts of it that are so timeless that we can't help but notice how shocking they are. Like... This isn't one of these things where a son goes to his dad in a market like now uh, where it's difficult to own a house and uh, interest rates are higher. They're historically still really good, but they're not as sweet as they were, you know, just eight months ago. Market's changing, inflation, they're trying to figure out how to get that under control. So it's not like the younger son is, you know, starting his life off and he says, hey dad, I think it'd be really good to have an investment property and could you leverage some of your estate to help me get into a place in Napa because nobody can afford that. Uh, you know, I know it'd be kind of like a front of your, an advance of maybe the estate that I might inherit some. What do you think, dad? Does this make sense? That is not this. What we're seeing here is a younger son who is saying the most offensive thing possible to his father. In short, he is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. And I want the money that I'm going to get when you die now. What do you think? Now, I'm a parent, and I know what I think. <laughs> I think the answer is no, Noah. <laughs> you know, if that's, if that's what my son uh, would say to me, no chance. By the way, a little word to the wise, this parable is not included in good parenting stories from the Bible. <laughs> Unless this is an example of what not to do, okay? So Jesus is not giving us a, a picture of this is what good dads do. Uh, go ahead and wipe out, you know, in this case, a third of his estate to give to his younger son. So people who would hear this story, they'd already be scoffing. They'd, they'd scoff as soon as they heard the request of the younger son. And then when they actually heard what the father did, they would scoff all over again. They would not be surprised that this kid went out and blew his fortune. And we can relate to that. Uh, because pretty much every, um, I, I, I haven't read the recent statistics, but they probably haven't changed, that most people who win a very substantial amount of money in the lottery end up blowing it and have very little left. Same is true with professional sports. 
as people get massive salaries and they live large and then you have a whole lot of NFL linemen who are in poverty you know just some years later so it's not a shock that the kid blew it he's young he's foolish he doesn't understand can't see beyond his nose in terms of the length of his life and finally we're not actually even sure if he was truly repentant honestly we don't know if he really had a quote come to Jesus moment at all uh, we just know that he figured out that being a Jewish guy feeding pigs is hilarious for one so I think that the audience that Jesus is talking about is they're laughing at this now and this guy wishing he could eat pig slop just talks about just how bottom of the barrel it was for this guy but we're not quite sure if the younger son really learned his lesson or not the only thing we know for sure is that he figured out that he might have a better shot and he might get fed better if he goes home and leverages his dad's love for him again this is a little important thing for us to get because sometimes we so look at this as repentant son which hopefully he was but we don't know that there's nothing in it that tells us that we just know that he crafted his speech on the long journey home and as soon as he does get home what happens dad's not in his office refusing uh, to have any audience no dad is looking for his son on the horizon probably every day he looks out to the horizon am I gonna see my son again I just want to see my son again and once he does what does he do this is another moment where the audience is gonna freak out what does he do he doesn't stay there and make the son come to him he runs and if you've heard me teach this before you know that an elder statesman who is wealthy does not run anywhere because he doesn't have to it is a statement of wealth and position and privilege to take your sweet time and let people wait for you because you are that big of a deal that's what's supposed to happen here that's not what happens this father ran ran to his son and was just so happy to see him the son starts with the speech and dad cuts him off throws new clothes on his back and here's the next shocker puts a ring on his finger probably not just any old ring remember this is a shock value parable that ring is probably a signet ring giving him full access to the estate all over again theologically it makes total sense practically it makes no sense at all so the audience members are like oh my gosh this is ridiculous the dad really is an idiot <laughs> again when will the dad learn his lesson but the dad won't have any of it because he's just so happy to have found that which was lost this is the third of three parables about things being lost and found again that there being some concern and searching for the lost thing and once the thing is found a great celebration happens and as this story is the biggest of the three stories it's also the biggest party he fills the fattened calf kills the fattened calf uh, now they're having good barbecue together right this is something that would last a long time this was an opportunity for the servants in the household to eat meat because they normally wouldn't get to eat meat this is a delicacy a rare opportunity dad's going all out uh, for this meal and everybody in the audience that Jesus heard or was telling this to 
they were probably chagrined. They're like, I just can't believe this. They're actually on the side of that next character that shows up, the older son, who's not happy at all about what's taken place. The older son hears what's going on, and not, there's no ounce that we can see of any celebration on his part. He's probably really frustrated, ticked off at his brother for doing what he did. It was so offensive, not just to his dad, but to him personally. It probably required more work now on the older brother. He had more to do. He had to watch his father mourn every day. That jerk son, his brother, who went off with the family fortune. He's got all kinds of reasons to be angry. He's got his own grief, his own frustration that has not been worked out. So when he comes back, hears what's going on, finds out that dad has made the same mistake twice, blowing cash on this kid, bringing him back in as a signer on the accounts, and now he's throwing this party. He's indignant, as he should be. This is how everybody is in the audience who's listening to this the very first time with Jesus. So how does dad handle this? Just says it plainly. Son, you've, you've always been here. You can almost hear, I love what Pam said there about maybe the older son feeling underappreciated. You can almost hear the, the undertones of dad just kind of recognizing that if we just play in the story. Oh, man, son, I'm sorry. You, you've been here the whole time. All I have is yours. I, I just thought you knew that. I thought you knew... I mean, it's my fault, as dad would say, that I haven't shared it with you enough, haven't articulated enough that I love you. But man, I'm so appreciative of you. But, but your brother's home. And I had to celebrate because he's my son too. And so I hope you'll come into the party and celebrate with us. But I, I get you. And if you can, I get it. But I hope you will. And then dad walks into the party, and that's the end of the story. We don't know what happens with the older brother. We don't know what happens with us, the ones with unprocessed anger and grief about what we do with the things we're indignant about. But the story really is not about the sons, even though they are critical characters. The story that Jesus is trying to tell is about the father on the next side, the daddy. So if you can get to that one for me. These are some things about the generosity of this Abba, or Abba is a better way to say it, or a better way to articulate it. Abba is very generous. From the very beginning, Abba is generous with patience. He's hearing his younger, foolish son out. He's understanding of where this kid is. He's generous in his understanding. He's ridiculously generous with resources. This is audacious that God would do something like this for this son. In this story, it's a made-up story, remember that. This Abba is also generous with hopeful longing. And I believe that's how God is with all of us. Uh, every misstep we make, I think there's a hopeful longing on the part of God of like, ah, oh, just, I just can't wait for the day when, when my child comes back, when my child's back in line, back in step. This Abba is generous with physical expression. He runs to, to meet him. I'm sure there had to be some kind of embrace and Abba's generous with meaningful gifts. The gifts that this younger son received in a flash are exactly what he needed. He needed clothes. You can't see this too well, but on Rembrandt's uh, painting, uh, his left foot is completely bare. And the shoe on his right foot 
Uh, it's a little anachronistic, but the shoe on his right foot, you know, is falling apart. The guy looks utterly homeless and utterly distraught. And so dad sees the needs that need to be met and he meets them. But he also wants to say something more than just giving him some clothing and some food, which were important. He wants to let him know, you are mine. You're never not going to be my kid. And so that's the real importance of the signet ring. It's not about money as much as meaning. What is this communicating to his son about belonging to dad? It's saying, you can run as far as you want, but as far as I'm concerned, this will never change. And you have full access to everything I am. It's really important for us to hear that. I'll get to that in a second. And then a little bit later with, uh, with his, uh, and this is, a, by the way, an expression of very generous wisdom on his part. And when the older son comes back, uh, wisdom comes out again and expressing things to the older son who's clearly upset. And by the way, this is just another audacious thing that I didn't mention, but if you're the older son, and again, thinking about the original audience that heard Jesus, when the older son comes and refuses to go into the party to find dad and cho chooses instead to wait outside and send servants in to get dad to come out of the party that dad is throwing, that would be another one of these audible gasps from the crowd because you don't do that. The father of this estate, he is the one who deserves respect. And it is greatly disrespectful for you to have a pity party outside and demand that the very host, the one who is throwing the party, take a break from that party and come out and deal with the older son. It's a, everything the older son was in its own way, in its own frame, its own picture, as offensive as what the younger son had done. The, young, the older son is no less guilty of breaking away from dad than the younger son. Just different variables. Now what does the dad do? He's patient. He's understanding. And he imparts wisdom. I can see how you're feeling. I get it. But you need to get this. That's my kid too. He's your brother. I love him too. And I'm throwing a party because it's worth throwing a party for. So I hope you'll come into the party. So there's a generous invitation there, which I think extends to us all the time. So there's some important things to think about, especially since this is sort of dovetailed into a, a talk about money and stewardship uh, as part of this series that we're looking at and the stuff that you have before you in the letter, all that stuff. And sometimes we look at our relationship with God. This is something this story uh, really helps correct. We think very transactionally with God. Uh, that if we do our part, then God will do God's part. We think if we're faithful, then God will be faithful. If we're good stewards with money, then God will bless us with riches. In fact, this is one of the prevailing uh, expressions of Christianity in our world today. It's called the prosperity gospel. You can see this literally on TV somewhere every day of the week and certainly on Sundays. Pastors are really awful with this, going so far as to say, if you with a big smile on their face, if you just send this in, God will bless you. What is that saying? That says transaction. It says, if you do this, your part, God will do God's part. 
And that is not what we're seeing in this. We're seeing a whole different sensibility, a whole different worldview, a whole different way of being here. Where Jesus is clearly saying with this parable, and again, it's meant for us to chew on and wrestle with, so if you completely disagree with me and want to say something, that's your right. But what I'm seeing here is Jesus saying that that's just not how God operates. That it's not one of these transactional things that if you give to a certain level and all of a sudden God is going to bless you at that level, I don't think that's it at all. That doesn't make sense according to what Jesus is giving us with his Abba. I think what does make sense, and I've experienced this personally, and I've talked to people who've experienced this personally, and I think why we get the transactional thing is because people have discovered that if they are generous uh, toward other people, churches, nonprofits, those kinds of things, strangely, uh, for a lot of those people, they do in some way get some kind of blessing somehow in return. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's just feeling really good about it. Sometimes it's out of left field. Something happens that they wouldn't maybe have experienced before. And so we immediately connect the two, like, oh, well, I was generous here, so I got that. So that must be how it works, but I don't think that's how it really works. I think what we're seeing here is Abba is operating on a flow, on a way of being that the sons haven't figured out yet. Neither one of them has figured it out. One of them, ironically, been in, with dad this whole time and still doesn't really get it. I think what Abba here is representing, what Jesus' experience with God is simply this, that everything that God has, everything that God is, is available to us all the time. And it has nothing to do with your behavior. It is not dependent on anything you or I do to have access to the full bank account of God. It's just there. So that when we mess up, uh, we don't have to think about uh, our sentence. Like, okay, well, I've, I created this kind of offense toward God, so it's going to be a much longer time in, in jail before God is going to bring me back or welcome me back. That's not how it works. That doesn't mean that there's no justice in how we play things out in terms of our, our real-world scenarios, but in terms of who we are in our relationship with God, that's not how it works. I think you know that. I know that because there have been times in my life where I, well, I'll say this and then I'll say something about it. There have been times in my life where I have been, you know, mistaken and not seeing the world straight and not getting it and doing things to myself and maybe others that were inappropriate, wrong, bad. We would call those things sin and every one of us could detail out, but I received the grace of God anyway, but that's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor, unearned love. And you American people have a real hard time with that. You do. Because we feel like we have earned everything, even if we haven't. We feel like it is our right to have that because somehow we've earned it, either by the length of our life or what we put in or the work we've done. We've earned whatever's coming to us, we tell ourselves. And what you need to hear from this parable is that's baloney in terms of who God is and your relationship with God. It's baloney. 
Everything that God is is yours, available all the time, long before you come aware of it, long before you make any confession, because the, the life of faith that Jesus has found, what animated him from that moment uh, in his, I don't know if it was the baptism or leading up to it or something happened in that period of his life, but whatever shook him, shook him so much that when he emerged into ministry, he had a new and different way of thinking that was fresh and different than what was being peddled at that time. If he'd have come out of his 40-day camping trip after baptism and rolled right into judgy Jesus and grumpy God talk, if that was the prevailing thing that set him apart, he would just be one among a thousand other Messiah wannabes that lived and breathed in his day. But that's not what happened. He came back lit up about the love of God and the transformative love of God for all people long before they bent the knee, long before they knew to ask for forgiveness, the grace was already there. That's right. The people you can't stand, the people you know are sinning boldly in the face of God, who have yet to bend the knee and ask for forgiveness, in terms of God, the grace was given before they even acted because that's what grace is it doesn't cheapen the grace <laughs> it exponentially makes it more powerful powerful for us, for us to rely on to trust in and to maybe change our lives so that as we think about what it means for us to live in the flow of God if God is that animating spirit as the breath in our lungs then there has to be a connection between us living in the way of Abba that actually leads to life in that spirit, in that ethos. And what we're seeing here is if this is what marks our countenance, our understanding, our way of being, I have a strong hunch that we're going to experience more and more of who God is in our lives. It's there for the taking. And it means that with people, with our resources, we need to think about what does it mean to be a child of Abba? What does it mean to be a person who walks in the Spirit, which does this all the time? And when we do that, it means that we look at everything about ourselves, our resources, our relationships, and we ask the question, what does it mean for me to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus as a child of Daddy? How does the fact that I am loved unconditionally, that there is an endless resource of the love of God available all the time, how does that impact the way I think about my relationships, my relationship with the material world, how much stuff I have, how much stuff I give away? It changes everything, if we'll think to ask it. So, uh, to end today, um, we're going to end uh, with a moment of silence just to work things out and then... Uh, we're going to do a, uh, a prayer uh, that I think is very familiar to you. Not the Lord's Prayer, but a different one. And then we're going to ask uh, Jennifer to come back up and sing one last song uh, here in just a second. But let's pray together, and then uh, I'll have you say the prayer of St. Francis with me in just a moment. So if you just close your eyes for a moment and breathe and listen. Is there one or two things? Are there one or two things that seem to be 
right in the fore of your attention. For the purposes of this parable, echoing what Pam said in the meditation earlier, do you know? Do you know, really, really know that you are forever and fully loved by God? Do you really know it? Some of you here today are examples of younger sons who blow it boldly and publicly. And you wonder, is there a second chance? And the answer here is that God is generous with grace. That before you even began to think about changing your steps and asking for forgiveness and turning it around, God had already done it. Because God can't hold the grudge. Some of you have been very grumpy like the older son. You've been grumpy about the things that other people are doing. All the sinning they're doing so boldly and publicly not realizing that you're falling into the same trap, distancing yourself from the loving gaze of God. Do you know that you're loved by God? Not because of what you have done, not because you have been faithful, not because you've said the magic words, signed off on the right dogma, not because you've been a member of a church, not because you've been baptized, not because you've kept up your devotionals, not because you read your Bible every day. You are loved by God only because that is who God is. So stop trying to earn it. God, there are so many pressures in our world to go the way of transaction, to view our relationship with you like we would our mortgage or our workplace or other human relationships. But that is not the foundation that transforms the world. May we renew our, our vision again of just how much you love us. May it empower us even as it humbles us. May it soften us in our vision of others that we have a hard time liking. May it draw empathy out of us for when we are in older brother mode. 
that we would begin to see every person through your eyes. And may we who have an eternal supply of love and grace, may we find ourselves looking more and more like you in all of your expressions of generosity. And now I invite you to open your eyes and Trudy, if you'd give us the next pair of slides. Let's say this together as Jennifer comes up. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. I invite you to stand for this uh, closing song.